I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, investigative journalist Nomi Prinz joins us to discuss her latest book, Permanent Distortion, How the Financial Markets Abandoned the Real Economy Forever. Nomi began her career in finance before becoming an investigative journalist who exposes the darker side of Wall Street and its impacts on average everyday people. Her previous books include It Takes a Pillage, Behind the Bonuses, Billouts, and Backroom Deals from Washington to Wall Street, All the President's Bankers, The Hidden Alliances That Drive American Power, and Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. In this conversation, Nomi and I will discuss what she means by permanent distortion, the Federal Reserve and quantitative easing, China and trade wars the rise of populism and its connection to wealth inequality, cryptocurrency and the Robinhood app, and much, much more. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with investigative journalist Nomi Prinz, author of Permanent Distortion, How the Financial Markets Abandoned the Real Economy Forever. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very excited to be speaking with, Nomi Prinz, author of a number of books on the world of finance, including It Takes a Pillage, All the President's Bankers, Collusion, and most recently, Permanent Distortion, How the Financial Markets Abandoned the Real Economy Forever. Nomi Prinz, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. So Nomi, uh, just to start out, if people uh, or some of my listeners are unfamiliar with your work. Could you talk about your background? I know you've worked at places like Goldman Sachs in the past, and now uh, you write pretty uh, thoughtful 
criticisms of maybe how the economy is going and and how Wall Street works. So how did you get to the point you're at now where you're doing this kind of journalism? Um, thanks. Uh, great, great question. I appreciate it. Um, yes, I did start out uh, my career as as an adult, I guess, <laughs> uh, and Wall Street. Um, actually, I was a teenager when I started, but 19, so that counts. Um, and I uh, started at Chase Manhattan Bank. I, I moved along to Lehman Brothers, to um, Bear Stearns in London, where I ran an analytics group there um, over in the 90s, um, and then ultimately to Goldman Sachs um, in the early 2000s, where I ran two groups um, responsible for various forms of sort of complex transactions with um, Goldman Sachs clients and, and the like. Um, and throughout that period, I obviously learned a lot. I traveled a lot. Um, I spoke with a lot of um companies and institutions managing their portfolios, their risk, their finances, um, balancing them against what was happening on the economic backdrop and all of that. Um, but as I sort of reached the, the end of that part of my career track, um, things were getting just really murky on Wall Street. Um, it was around the time of a lot of scandals, Enron, WorldCom, a lot of things were going uh, very haywire. Um, and also it was a time of 9-11, um, uh, you know, as I was in Goldman Sachs, when uh, the planes hit the towers not too far away from my office window. Um, and I just think that was the, the sort of end wake up call um, in terms of me recognizing that I wanted to do something else um, with my life, with my voice, with my experiences. Um, and so I started writing. Um, the first job I had actually was as a co-writer. Um, so I went from managing director, corner office, Goldman Sachs, to bringing coffee um, to a fabulous writer at, at Fortune magazine, um, where we wrote about a scandal in the... Um, telecommunications sector that was unfolding at the time um, and sort of went from there um, in terms of writing, in terms of writing books. My first book, Other People's Money, came out in 2004 and it kind of outlined what was going on inside of Wall Street during the early 2000s um, and also how the bedrock was set then um, for what became the financial crisis of 2008. I just sort of continued to go from there to, to speak out, to, um, to discuss my experiences, my analysis of them, um, how that impacts the world today, um, obviously integrating all of that as time has gone forward. Um, and so, yeah, now I write books, I, I, I speak, I still speak with leaders um, in different political positions around the world to basically say, look, this is how it can be safer. This is how it can be more productive. This is how people can, can benefit more relative to Wall Street um, and all of that on a sort of regular basis. So then, I wanna get into how permanent distortion connects to some of your other books, but maybe we should just give listeners the the thesis of permanent distortion. And I, I think the best way to do that is maybe to explain the title a little bit. What do we mean by permanent distortion and this idea that uh, the future is distortion as last uh, chapter of your book is titled? Um, yeah. So basically, if you just consider money um, as, as sort of a force um, in and of itself, then, then the creation of money, the fabrication of money, for example, at the behest of the Federal Reserve Bank, um, is something that can manifest in lots of different ways. And the more money that's created, the more quickly, um, the more that that the investment community, Wall Street, um, private equity, different large financial institutions, and so forth, can get a hand on more of it and use it to um, sort of their advantage. Um, and, and a lot of what has happened since the financial crisis is that uh, when the Fed brought rates down to zero, so brought the cost of money down to zero, that doesn't mean for you and I it's zero. It just means for banks it's it's close to zero. So the cost of borrowing became negligible, which meant responsibility uh, to anything became negligible, and that allowed that money to be sort of strewn about 
um, the markets and various risky assets on a, a fairly easy basis. And that continued really um, in one way or the other from 2008 through um, the middle of 2019. There was a period in there where the Fed did raise rates. Um, it did reduce the size of its massive bulk of assets through a process called quantitative easing, or effectively injecting more money into the markets in a different way. So now institutions get money cheap, plus they get to sell their bonds and return for money and, and so forth. Um, there was a little bit of movement on that to kind of tighten that up a bit. Um, but then by mid-2019, we were back to um, very low rates, Fed buying bonds again, and so forth. That it continued into the pandemic. Um, so that already created a, a sort of a distortion between how money is created, where it goes, how it doesn't need to go to the real economy or spend a lot of time there. I mean, some of it obviously does uh, relative to the markets where it can replicate itself more quickly. So money is all about replication, right? You think of it as sort of a, a virus or an external organism, you know, wants to reproduce itself. And so the easiest way to do that is in markets, not waiting for a bridge to be built or, or waiting for, um, you know, an airport to be upgraded or waiting for a power grid to be uh, renewed or, or anything like that. It, I mean, these things do happen. Happen, but but money goes more quickly into the financial markets and that's what happened. By the time we got to the crisis um, of the pandemic, uh, the Federal Reserve went into overdrive on this entire process, brought rates back down to zero, doubled the size of its book of assets, meaning it injected another four and a half trillion on top of the four or so trillion it had already created and brought the size of the money that it basically had on offer in addition to new borrowing being at 0% for institutions um, and almost $9 trillion. And that created what I call a permanent distortion because what it meant was that markets really relied um, on that money and, and the real economy kind of had to do um, with not having that same benefit in terms of how it could grow um, on, on, on the foundational level for Main Street and so forth. Again, it does, but not at the same level. And that's where that distortion comes into play. Um, and of course, in the last year, we've seen the Fed raise rates or sort of reverse some of that. I mean, it still has a massive book of assets, way bigger than it was uh, before the pandemic. Um, so it still has got money on offer. But um, rates have gone up very quickly, in fact, more quickly than they ever had in history. And so we see another um, incarnation of that permanent distortion, which is that the markets freaked out. All this money sort of went to, to sort of hiding places um, and real people lost real money in real retirement funds as a, as a sort of process um, of that ha money having bubbled up and then sort of drained out. Um, to an extent. Um, and that's where we're at now. Now we're in this period of when's the Fed going to um, stop raising rates? When is the Fed going to go back to easing? How does that impact money? And the fact that we're even asking those questions, um, not just me bringing them up between you and I, um, but that they're out there, that, that they're in the business media, that they're in even you know the mainstream media, even CNN talks about what the Fed's doing. Um, you know, the fact that we even do this on such a wide basis means there's something severely and permanently distorted um, in terms of how money is created, where it goes, and when it goes there. When it comes to talking about uh, the Federal Reserve or terms like quantitative easing, I, I feel like a lot of people I know that that don't follow these subjects in depth, I, I think they feel like they're they're getting hit with a lot of like different terms and, and yeah. organizations, and yeah. it can feel overwhelming. So yeah. when it comes to speaking to a very lay audience about yeah. the Federal Reserve and quantitative easing, how do you sort of explain that uh, to people that maybe outside the bubble on those things? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question, because quantitative easing is really a dumbly wonky term. I mean, it, it on a, if, if you didn't have, or even if I didn't have an association as to what quantitative easing actually meant, um, I, the two words together would mean very little. Um, but what it does mean <laughs> is that the Federal Reserve can effectively fabricate money um, sort of electronically, and it can use that money to buy 
bonds from financial institutions or, or sort of other players in the financial, mar- large institutions in, in, in the financial markets. So those can be treasury bonds, they can be mortgage bonds. In other countries, there are other forms of bonds. But the point is that these central banks can literally decide um, to create money in order to buy stuff. You know, it would be like equivalent to, um, you know, there's a garage sale next door and like you're broke. And so you have the ability to sort of manifest a bunch of money to buy a bunch of junk from next door um, because you want to. Now, it's broader than that for the Fed because it talks about doing all this for the benefit of, of the economy and the benefit of, um, you know, sort of everybody listening. But the reality is um, that they don't actually get this money because most people don't have trillions of dollars of bonds to sell the Fed in return for money. Um, so so this, this just by just construct um, is a way to sort of create money that's not productively created. It's not really profit. It's not taxes. It's, not, it's nothing but kind of electronic. Um, and what that allows is that money to be used by the financial players that sell those bonds. So it would be basically like the garage sale guys um, or family saying like, all right, we got all this money for all our junk. Now we're going to go and buy a bunch of other stuff. We're going to go get drunk or whatever, like, you know, just do other things with that money that um, have nothing to do with really anything. Um, and, and that's, and that's where the responsibility to that money um, of wall street to main street also kind of phrase. Um, and that's really what the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve is sort of like the parents to the financial system and, and to the market. It's like, we need money. Okay, here you go. It's kind of needs to be paid back. But like, if you don't, you know, we're your parents, so we'll kind of let it slide. And that's basically a, a big part of quantitative easing anyway. And the other thing I wanted to get into, because I, I know you said earlier, uh, the, the term, the real economy, maybe we could just explain and I, I hope this isn't too basic, but what, what is the difference between like the real economy and I guess the the sort of financial economy? So the real economy is basically anything that that we use or need, right? So it's it's the food we eat. It's um, it's the person who you know is a bartender at our local you know sort of watering hole, hole that like you know sells us something. It's it's which is a service, which is part of the real economy. So it's the wages associated with that or the tips associated with that. Um, it's the gas we put into our car as it is clean or not clean, as it comes from one source or not another source. Um, it's how we harness energy um, for the future, you know, whether that's solar or wind or whatever else and the cost of um, being able to do that efficiently um, and sort of growing and transitioning into a more efficient way to do that. We're still, for example, nascent to that. Um, constructing new bridges where they're breaking, um, you know, filling potholes in highways where they're dangerous, um, creating more security from a cyberspace perspective for air traffic controllers. So we don't have all of our air uh, planes basically grounded on any given day, as we've seen recently. Um, it's, 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 it's real stuff. It's physical stuff. It's real use stuff. It's real services from like people to people. And then uh, one really interesting uh, aspect of the book, I I love that at the beginning, uh, if I can quote from the book here for a moment, uh, you write, the earth may spin on its axis, but the world revolves around money, populism, nationalism, isolationism, corruption, trade wars, military wars, health crises, inequality, economic hardship, and financial market bubbles, all of them are connected to money. Um, So, I I mean, that's that's a big statement there. So, how do all these things sort of connect? How how does 
money play a role in the rise of populism, the, the rise of military wars, trade wars, corruption, uh, et cetera. And I know that's a lot to tackle there, but. But I wrote it. So, um, no, it's because any any people, any citizens, group of citizens, nation of individuals um, will feel disenfranchised when they see decisions being made that allow too much money on a disproportionate basis, on an unfair advantage basis, um, floating to the top, floating to the powerful, floating to the corrupt, and et cetera. People get annoyed by that sort of thing. And populism is this idea of that on a sort of broad basis, but it has its roots in, hey, this money is flowing out here. Um, again, money, um, we have, so we'll have a trade war and we'll sort of try to figure out a way to keep it at home. But that creates a bigger economic problem sort of in general, because now we don't have parts coming from one area to another. So prices go up and then we get inflation. There's all sorts of different things that happen that have to do with how money flows and who directs it. And so that's why all of these manifestations of um, people changing, of unrest, populism and so forth, has to do ultimately with that inequality of the power to create and distribute money. And then I'm interested in talking a little bit about uh, more specifically the rise of populism in the era of Trump. And, and what role does that play in the story you're telling in Permanent Distortion? Well, I think because um, people felt disenfranchised um, from their government, they chose leaders, um, Trump, Bolsonaro and Brazil and so forth. I go through some other examples that really run on the basis of um, the sort of new populism, which is effectively helping people um, that are upset, that are frustrated um, in, in a different way. And so whether they're able to fulfill those promises or not, um, those promises are made on the basis of people's general frustration um, with their with their lot, um, generally from an economic or financial perspective. And so that's why um, they turn away, and this, this is happening, you know, generally people turn away from the, the government in power to elect a new government. That's whether it's going from Democrats to Republicans, Republicans back to Democrats, a new leader versus um, sort of old school. There, there's all, the, the more people are uh, disenfranchised, the more likely they are to want to choose someone that says, hey, I got you, I'm going to help you, or just anybody new. And then with with regards to this idea of um, the, the permanent distortion that we're living under, uh, where do you pinpoint that as really things taking off? Like what led to the permanent distortion? So again, we go back to the financial crisis of 2008 a little bit before that. We had a situation where Wall Street was effectively um, creating, this was way back, but they were basically creating all sorts of packages of mortgages that weren't performing very well. And they were basically reconstituting them. It's like taking a, a basically all kinds of, you know, taking a, a little bit of cherries and putting them into like a thousand pies, sort of like, you know, sort of strewing them out through lots of pies. They took these loans, they strewed them out through a lot of different assets and then they sold them and they promised that they all had the same amount of cherries in them and everything was going to be fine. The reality was a lot of these subprime loans crashed, defaulted, people can afford them, different things. Um, so all these assets kind of started to collapse as well. And the banks had borrowed money to buy them, to create them, sold them to each other and so forth. And like, hey, wait a minute, we need help. And that's how the bailout happened in the financial um, crisis of 2008. In the wake of that, the Federal Reserve said, all right, well, we're going to help you out even more banks. We're going to give you 0% rates so you can like basically you know, get your money sorted. And also we're going to buy some of those uh, mortgage assets and, and some bonds and give you money in return so we can help you even more. And that was in addition to bailouts from the government. 
that created this, this beginning, what I call phase one of the great distortion. Um, and this continued from 2008 through, um, as I mentioned before, 2019, just in different ways, a little bit in the middle, there, there was some changing of what the Fed and how the Fed was doing, what it was with rates and money rates went up a little bit. Um, they sold some of the assets off their book, or book their book. Um, so basically took cash out of the market, but not, not, not anything crazy. Um, but then again, the pandemic happened and the Fed went back and doubled down on that same playbook and said, wait, we don't want a financial crisis. We don't want any kind of crisis financially um, like that or of any other kind. So we're just going to create more and more money. And we're going to bring it back to zero. And as a result, the markets went ballistic um, while people were stuck at home, um, which is kind of a massive um, amount of distortion. Now, some people then, then and still say, well, the reason they went ballistic is because the markets were anticipating that at some point people would get out of their homes and the economy would come back. Well, they were rising well before anybody actually knew that. You know, there was a lot of uncertainty at the time. And so that's when I think this distortion, remember this idea that the Fed will always be there. It's different today. So the distortion isn't just that the Fed always pumps out money. Right now, it's kind of restraining the level of rates. It's hiking rates more aggressively um, than any time in its history. But the distortion is already there. And, and the minute the Fed pivots back to neutrality and then to cutting rates because the economy is recessing, um, or at least that's the reason they'll use, but the markets have gotten too far um, below their trajectory. Well, it's it's going to all go back up again. Um, so 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 whatever is embedded now is 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 permanent. It's just um, that at any moment in time it can be changing. But in terms of what the Fed is actually doing, what central banks are doing, but but that reliance on that sort of external source um, of money ultimately, whether it's right now or whether it's in a year from now or whether it's in two years from now, um, is 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 now permanently baked into the cake. Of I the love how. What was that? Of the financial markets. I was going to say, I love how you portray this in parts, um, you know, with, with the final part being, you know, the metamorphosis into permanent distortion. Right. Uh, but you, you sort of uh, start with the idea of, you know, it starts with chaos, then, then addiction, then everything goes into overdrive. And then part four is metamorphosis. Um, I, I just thought those were interesting choices of words to use. I was wondering if you could uh, maybe yeah. comment on why you broke the book up into those four specific parts. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that, um, that you, you noted that um, because they they were very carefully chosen words. Um, and, I, and I do appreciate, you know, sort of uh, mentioning that because the reality is, you know, the chaos was, all right, we had a financial crisis that allegedly came out of nowhere. Now, anybody watching, writing about it, really paying attention, realized that there were reasons for it. I was one of them, lots of reporters were, but we were not kind of, the voice uh, that everybody was listening to at the time, but certainly there are problems brewing. Uh, but then when everything kind of got really crazy in the fall of 2008 and that chaos happened, that's when the Fed went into, um, you know, this mode of overdrive of, of basically, you know, sort of capturing this, this idea that we can help everything and save everything and save the economy and everything else. And this is going to be something that, um, that we're going to be taking into account. And I, I, I consider, you know, whether it's overdrive first or addiction first, I mean, basically you could look at the, the, the Fed went into overdrive, but then the markets became addicted to this idea of free or easy money, um, which was always going to be able to propel them forward. And you didn't have to do that much with it. You know, you could basically invest, um, buy back stocks, do a lot of things on the financial side that, you know, would take much longer, you know, building, you know, building anything or creating anything or upgrading grids or whatever it might be to actually see sort of a return on that money. 
um, which you didn't have with 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 this. Um, and the metamorphosis, what comes what comes as a result of that? Well, when everything was going on in the markets, lots of things happened. Retail investors started saying, hey, wait a minute, Wall Street's making money. The market appears to only be going up right now and we're home. Um, and that's when you had Robinhood traders and that's when you had a lot more uh, retail investors come into play because it was really easy. I mean, that, the markets were going in one way and the Fed was doing one thing. Um, it got a little bit more tricky when the Fed changed um, last year what it was doing, um, and, and not everybody had experience with what happens when when markets go down or, or waiting out. Um, actually, when markets go down, that's created another sort of wrinkle of this metamorphosis. But but again, still a lot more retail investors are individually um, managing or trading their own money right now than than before. Um, Bitcoin or crypto assets um, became much more um, desired by by sort of individual. Um, retail traders or, or just retail investors, because um, again, there was this um, yeah, yeah, this idea that, well, if money goes there, it'll go up. The price of Bitcoin was rising. Um, more and more people are talking about it. So that momentum sort of manifested itself. And this was another metamorphosis. And right now, of course, Bitcoin is off from its highs. Um, and a lot of cryptos have crashed and burned and a lot of exchanges have crashed and burned. But the, but the, but the fundamental um, idea of, of, of Bitcoin and of having uh, a currency that's outside of the Federal Reserve's sort of direct purview uh, remains. Um, and we still have yet to see really how that's going to manifest over time. Um, so again, I think that's part of the metamorphosis that we're in. Um, and then of course, other areas that I talk about, new energy, infrastructure, transform technology, meta-reality, and in different ways, these things um, have popped up as focus areas, um, not all at once. Um, but it's areas that will sort of grow out of this, this permanent distortion period um, from a real economy standpoint, real economy trying to catch up a bit, um, necessity, um, independent companies working together, but, but independently on, on different types of technologies. I mean, all of this stuff is, is part of this uh, metamorphosis that's really arisen from this just general distortion of, again, money creation and distribution. Yeah, I was really interested actually in talking a little bit about those final few chapters, you know, the, the chapter on the crypto wars. And then uh, you had a whole chapter on, you know, the rise of the Robin Hood app and whatnot. And I, I love that line you have. You write that permanent distortion drove scores of younger investors into the markets because of their inherent distrust of what seemed to be a clearly rigged system. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the rise of these things like Robin Hood app and you know, I, I know you talk a little bit about that Reddit um, phenomena, Wall Street bets. How did these things come to be and what has the fallout been from them? Well, I think, um, you know, these things that were um, they're they're sort of latent before uh, the pandemic period. But but so was the overdrive, um, second overdrive of the Fed. You know, the Fed went crazy um, in the wake of the pandemic. Markets went crazy. Crypto went out like a lot of things were happening. And as a result, um, people were talking and, and where people talk, um, you know, is through social networks, through Reddit, through through different sort of groups that are created. Um, and what they're talking about was, uh, you know, how to basically um, get both involved in, in what was going on in finance, but also sort of, yeah, fight back against how rigged um, finance was. I mean, it is, after all, the big banks, the big uh, private equity companies, the big investment banks that are able to get their hands on on most of the money um, and direct where most of the money goes. And, and, and these things were ways where people could say, all right, you know what, if we group together um, and communicate, well, maybe we can take on some of what's been happening um, all along, but now we're just more aware of it. 
If you could, I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, you know the issue of wages and um, inflation and how it, it feels like wages aren't keeping up uh, just with the price of, of um, foods and whatnot. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what? Why have we gotten to this point? Yeah, I mean, this again goes to 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 the the great distortion. We, we've had money go into into shares, into companies, into you know, speculation, and all sorts of things, but not necessarily into wages. So as a result, wages relative to the prices of anything um, have really not kept up. Now they have increased um, in 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 the recent year or two because um, they're simply. Uh, People are being actually more choosy um, in terms of where they work. That they're, they're having more jobs available. That's kind of changing because there's a lot of layoffs now coming on onto the onto the scene. So so there's a bit of change going on there, and some wages have gone up as a result. But but net net, the sort of level of wages compared to what is needed um, for people to live, you know, whether that's rent, whether that's food, whether it's healthcare, whatever it might be, have have not actually kept up. Um, and everybody seems to know this who lives in the real world or even looks at the data, except for um, the Fed, who feels that if they continue to raise rates to, to fight inflation, that somehow that's going to bring inflation down. And also it'll bring wage inflation down, which they consider to be a big sort of problem area uh, in the whole inflation sphere. Um, and why they want to make people uh, earn less money uh, is kind of beyond me. I mean, you would think that if, if they're earning more, um, people would be able to both um you know, live better, um, you know, potentially create their own businesses, you know, aggregate with each other on things, you know, just be sane or et cetera. You know, there, there's, but the Fed feels that wages have gotten too high, uh, too fast, which is not actually um, the case. And hence there's this, again, distortive set of ideas between the people that control the cost of money and, and everybody else. Before we close out, um, I guess, you know, since we had mentioned Robin Hood and, and the crypto wars, I think there's a lot of people uh, that are that are big fans of things like Robin Hood or, or uh, we're big boosters of crypto. I think that's changing a little bit now. But, uh, you know, there were people really pushing those things as this is the alternative uh, to this rigged economy. Uh, and I don't think those things were the alternative. But what what do you think is the alternative? Like, how how can we what 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 would the necessary changes and reforms that would need to be made uh the the real reforms that would be need to be made uh to this financial system for things to get better for you know just the people in general well i mean i think one one thing is to completely uh, change how how the fed is is made up um one thing might be to elect the officials instead of us having literally no ability to hire or fire them um, and therefore, they have no actual accountability to, to Main Street or the real economy, even though they talk about it a whole lot. Um, that that would be one thing, um, because they would have to then be actually concerned about issues that actually um, impact people in the real world. Um, so, so that that would be one thing. Being transparent um, with where their money is going would be another thing, um, because, again, not knowing and, and looking at so much money going to so many institutions, again, even with a, a negative year in the stock market this year, but just sort of on average, and particularly since the financial crisis most years, um, this is this is definitely kind of an issue. So there's big institutional things um, that I think can happen from the standpoint of, again, who's creating money. Um, I do think these alternatives, um, you know, whether it's Reddit, whether it's it's um, it's crypto. I mean, the, the, this, these are these are part of this desire um, and the need, really, um, to to basically, you know, kind of 
have commerce with each other without necessarily being impacted by um, what the Fed is doing or how the banks are benefiting from it. And it's it's very small. And with respect to retail trading, um, obviously it's it's rife with risk because the big institutions can basically swing a lot of money around relative to even the biggest groups of small institutions over time, by small individuals over time. Um, so, so there's issues there, but I, but I think the ideas of having um, decentralized finance, um, e- even um, applications where you can actually, you know, sort of send money back and forth, loan back and forth outside of um, the big banks, um, I think that's positive as well. And the more people that, that do that, um, you know, even if it's through an app like Square, you know, the more people that literally like do their small businesses outside of a big bank and, and sort of transact on their systems, um, they, they eke away at the sort of bigger power. They're not going to change it. We're not going to change it. Um, I used to think that when I was much younger. I don't I don't think that now, but we can certainly take back some of that financial power by, you know, by, by, by just doing things a little bit outside the system. I just have two more questions if you have the time. Um the first is, I, I know you talk a little bit about China in the book. Um, you talk about Trump and the sort of trade wars with China, tariffs and whatnot. How does China figure into the story of uh, permanent distortion? Well, what China did that, that we we didn't do um, during the post-financial crisis period is they actually invested um, the money that their central bank was creating into their real economy um, and into lending money to um, economies around them particularly in the South Pacific area and the Asian region, um, to, to build stuff um, as well and to sort of to create more lasting infrastructure um, and things like that. Not perfectly, but the point is they were doing that while we weren't. While we were just basically as a nation saying, here's a bunch of money, you know, financial institutions, go do whatever you want to do with it. Um, and so in that respect, China became more economically powerful um, because they were focused on their economy on the real economy and 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 that with the nations around them. Um, and so as a result, when you get to trade wars, because China's actually building stuff, um, basically a place where, where where jobs are going, this is true, um, has a lot of natural resources, which which it continues to explore, which are being used in energy and other transitions. I mean, all this stuff comes into bear. Um, and that elevates the price of things. So trade wars actually elevated the price of materials from China. Um, yes, it got us some revenue in, in, in that play, but, but necessary materials. And then and the pandemic made them go higher just because of general supply and demand and inflationary pressures. Um, and so that's how that, that came in as well. So um, I think without the Fed making, you know, creating money and, and uh, the US basically spending it without it going necessarily into the real economy, uh, create an opportunity for China to really become more of a superpower than it might otherwise um, have become as quickly. The last thing I want to touch upon was, um, you know, we can talk about uh, different uh, groups that get mentioned when we when we discuss this subject of the economy. Like, um, you know, I know BlackRock uh, gets mentioned in the book, uh, but you know, when we're talking about all these different firms and, and companies, uh, I think what people miss is that you know a, a lot of American households really don't have any stake in a lot of these. Um, financial investments. So they're not really the the beneficiaries. Um, could, could you talk about the the sort of nitty gritty of that just to close out this conversation, how uh, th- there is a difference between the average American household and the, the beneficiaries of the stock market? Sure. About 10 to 15 percent of, of the country owns 85 percent of, of the stock market. Right. So, I mean, there's there's definitely um, 
we're definitely in a world where not everybody has a stake and the stakes that they do have relative to those larger stakes um, are, are kind of min minute. Um, however, what BlackRock does by amassing lots of money um, and, and owning shares in large institutions, whether they be banks or whether they be oil companies or whether they be um, construction companies or whatever, they have the ability to sort of um, create directions for those companies um, to go in that can potentially then impact us in different ways, um, raise the price of certain things relative to um, to what it might be if um, and I was saying BlackRock is, is is making prices go up, but the point being that if there's money um, sitting in shares and at shareholder meetings that other people can't access, even though they don't own those shares, um, they have less power as a result. So whether you're involved in the stock market or not, um, the people that are involved in the stock market, um, A, have a greater benefit from its upside, but also the ones that have more shares and more companies and institutions um, have more of an ability to really shape um, the overall economy by simply the might of their position. And I was going to say, for people that don't know, um, what does BlackRock do? It's, I mean, it's an asset management company, but for people that are unfamiliar, what does that mean? Because I know uh, you say in the book that you know, they were firmly on the path of uh, to becoming the Goldman Sachs of the permanent distortion era in terms of influence, money and power. So what, why are they so um, relevant and important to understand? Well, they, 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 they own about $10 trillion worth of assets, which is more than the size of most countries. What does that mean? It means pension funds. It means individual investors. It means corporations all use them and say, hey, here's our money. You guys decide what to buy with it. And you tell us how much we're going to make and sort of we'll just keep that money with you. Um, and that can be, again, retirement funds, pension funds, other investment companies, corporations, individuals. Um, but through that process, they've just amassed a ton of money. They have a lot of um, relationships that they've also grown and strengthened over the years with Washington. Um, and they have a lot of say um, in terms of how the financial world is regulated, what happens, um, who does what, who's responsible for what. Um, and therefore, they just have a lot of power because they have so many assets. So I, I want to let you get going because we've gone a, a few minutes over here. But in closing, uh, what do you hope listeners get out of this conversation? And what do you hope for the future? How can we get out of this uh, permanent distortion era? Well, I don't know that we get out um, because, again, I, I do think it's permanent, but I do think it allows us to um, you know, make, make, make choices as to where we put our money, how we invest, whether we work with each other, create small companies, create alliances, networks, um, focus on our local community and on the ground up if money isn't flowing from, from the top down. Um, and I also just think education is really important. It's important to know what's going on. Um, that's why I write books. <laughs> that's why I wrote Permanent Distortion. It wasn't just to, um, you know, espouse my opinion, but it's to hopefully um, let people who buy it or borrow it from a library or whatever um, learn. And, and, and information is another form of power. Well, thank you again, Nomi Prince, for coming on Parallax Views. And I hope everyone checks out the book Permanent Distortion. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nomi Prince and that you'll check out her book, Permanent Distortion, How the Financial Markets Abandoned the Real Economy Forever. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallax views and with that being said 
Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. That's to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.